one by one, we're just trying to, we're, we're trying to reset the standards for creativity in the city. Hi everyone, and welcome to Western Planner Radio, a podcast where we try to connect with planners from around the West, learn from each other, and build up the West together. My guest today is Jaina Watson, city planner in Spearfish, South Dakota. Hi, Jaina. Thanks for talking with me today. Uh, Jaina is on the Western Planner editorial board and was going to present at the 2020 conference before it was rescheduled. So, Jaina, what got you into planning? I got into planning. I uh, graduated from South Dakota State University uh, a long time ago and uh, moved to Arizona early in my career and uh, immediately got into, I've worked in private practice probably a, less than I have in public. I've been in public for the majority of it, but probably spent about 10 years all told in, in private. And I think that helped me understand what is what the how it feels to be on the other side of the fence when you're trying to work through a community zoning regulations and how do I lay out the site plan? And how do I, you know, how do I design this parking lot based on that community's zoning code? So um, I love design. I love community design. It's one of my favorite things. Um, so I, um, in Arizona, the, um, the economy got really bad, like in the late 1980s. And so I decided that, well, maybe that's how I ended up in private practice, private sector or public. I went, um, I went to work for the city of Scottsdale, uh, in the late 1980s. And I was there for about 14 years. And so I, um, worked in their development review section. And I just love, I just like being, I think what's the funnest about planning is, I don't know, developing the strategies, you know, trying to figure out how to outwit (laughs) some, uh, pick pick a word, some, some project owner or some other agency or some other staff member where it's like, I know where they're going and I'm going to head them off at the pass. That's kind of, it's, it's fun to do that. Um, but not, but not so that you can just be a winner, just so that you can make something great happen for your community. So that's what I like the most, I guess, is the strategy, the thinking, um, the solve, problem solving. I love community design, I like talking about community design issues. Diagonal parking was just my thing. So what brought you back to South Dakota? I went to Sturgis High School, so I'm I'm already kind of a South Dakotan. I've actually I'm I've moved as much as a military kid, but never in the military. Born in Denver, raised in Boulder, back to South Dakota when my dad had his midlife. Down to Arizona for the, my you know early adult life. Had two children, got a divorce, came back to South Dakota in like 2004. Um, finished raising my children here. Uh, because my mom said, you know, I think this would be a good break for you to come back home. And so I did. That's how I got here. So what do you enjoy most about planning then? I like it when we are given a very complex problem to solve and we have to work a lot with different departments and different people to come up with something that essentially is workable. It's got a lot of buy-in. I don't like doing stuff all on my own and then later going into the meeting saying, well, you didn't talk to me about this. So I've kind of learned that in my career, you know, collaboration is best. So I'd say my favorite is working on very technical and difficult problems. What do you enjoy uh, about living and working in there in Spearfish? I think it's unique 
I guess environment obviously is, is one thing. We have a creek running through our town. Not as many places in the West are blessed with that level of amenity. We are, and we have great creek bank. And we also own a 800 acre uh, mountain preserve full of hiking. And so <clears throat> Spearfish really does have a lot of recreational opportunity. So I know you and your team are doing some exciting things there in Spearfish. Uh, would you like to tell me what's going on? Some of the unique challenges that we have had, breaking out of these old sort of borrowed, um, revamped sort of fit us molds of planning and zoning techniques and methods. So we're, we, we want to be leading in, in terms of those issues. And we've done a few things that have been kind of crazy uh, experimentally and some have worked, some haven't, but we're not afraid to try something new. So about, mm, I'm gonna say it's about three years ago, we have a lot of difficulty with um, keeping our uh, original town housing inventory up and, and vital. Uh, we have a lot of rundown stuff. We have a thing, things that are that really need to be renovated and modernized, but the owners uh, can't do it because on a very long, narrow lot, it was taking up to probably 50% of the developable space on the lot away from uh, reconstruction and re re revitalization of these homes. So for example, on a 50 foot wide by a 140 foot wide residential lot in the downtown that had an old shack built on it back in the 20s, um, those particular corner lots were just getting killed by the big setbacks. We already have a 20 foot wide boulevard, then you add 25 feet on top of that for a front setback. You wind up with almost next to nothing in terms of lot width to build on, like 20 feet of width. And there's a lot of creative designs out there for very narrow lots, but it really was not meeting with what our our residents and our, our builders wanted to build for people. So we looked at that and said, we got to do something different here. And so that was the beginning of an amendment to our um, downtown residential zoning districts, where we took a 25-foot setback and turned it into a 12-foot building setback. And what this did was it dramatically will change the amount of flexibility in lot area you can use. Um, and I think the ironic part to that particular project was there was a lot of paranoia and pushback um, to what? We're not gonna have 20 feet, we're not gonna have 55 foot front yards from the curb anymore? No, we're not. Well, that's just gonna be radically different if for our town and we're just not used to that. So at the time, I said to my assistant, we really need to collect some data and we're going to do a little study and we're going to inventory and all we're going to do is pick out randomly uh, five or six blocks and we're going to assess them as for existing conditions today. We came up with at least 200 parcels where the existing buildings were sitting on the property line, seven feet from the property line. So on the one hand, we had this great idea that staff had to fix the problem and then we had a, another contingent who said but it's going to be really different from what we have it's like no 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 look at the data the data is showing you you already got it your your homes are not all going to be 
at this big long distance. And so that took a while for people to understand that we already have the conditions that this ordinance will allow. It finally did pass. Um, so that's one thing we did. We, again, we, we let go of our hard and fast front yard rules to make something work for our community. So they were comfortable with it, but they didn't realize that they were comfortable with it until you pointed it, it out to them. Look, has anyone complained about the fact that here we have a list of about 200 lots that all have a less than 25 foot setback? So it was you and your staff that identified this problem then? We did preemptively and we've, we've done it, you know, so that we're not sitting around going in, you know, 10, 15 years, man, we really should have loosened that up because now we have a slum on our hands. And what do we do about that? I think a good planning department won't wait until their owners are standing in front of the city council saying, you better fix this mess you have on your hands. A good planning department will say, here's the input we're getting from our community, and I think that's staff's role, is when they're hearing there's there's something that's not fitting, our jobs are to bring it to someone's attention. That's, that's one example. Another example, we decided to let go of required parking, mandatory parking requirements for our downtown redevelopment sites. Let the market provide it. Let the, hey, guess what, let the on-street you know, hundreds of miles of curbside parking carry the parking requirement. Why are we taking very valuable downtown uh, real estate, commercial real estate, and taking 50% of it out of productivity just to park on it? We are going to kill our, our redevelopment opportunities by doing that. And so, of course, we're not like downtown Denver where you can um, <clears throat> avoid a parking requirement because, hey, guess what? The nearest residential is another, you know, two, three miles away. So we have a very, it's downtown and a block next to it is residential. So there's a little, it's not that easy because we didn't want to have an impact on those residences, but we figured we got to come up with some solution. What we did on the parking side of it, so what we did was we said, you start with, you tell us how much parking the ordinance would require of you normally. Okay. Then you get to just cut that in half. And then you show us where the remaining 50% will go either on property on curbside. You can also improve the boulevards to do angle parking or 90 degree parking. So there's a lot of choices there. It can be along the frontage. It can be on, on the site. Uh, and there were some other caveats. So we sort of, um, we, we, re we reduced the parking requirement total by 50% and then gave them flexibility to count stuff in the right of way as parking. So it was, it was both sides. So in our, in our down, in, in our, Downtown core, you have your central core zoning, which is which has zero parking requirements. That's your main street stuff. Then you have sort of that transitional uh, zoning, which is also commercial, and that one has off-street parking requirements. Um, but what we did was we said, if you're doing a redevelopment project and your new assessed value is at least twice of the underlying existing, then you qualify. And I'm summarizing a lot because there's other things like you have to be able to provide, show where the off street can go. There has to be capacity in the street. Um, you have to do, you have to choose from some other extra criteria like adding street trees, widening sidewalks, um, doing uh, innovative and creative green building design things. So there's a whole bunch of other choices you have in order to qualify for this parking reduction. So we, um, 
convince the city council that if somebody is doing something significant in a redevelopment scheme, uh, that they should be rewarded with some relief from this parking requirement. And we just had our first, our first case just went through. Um, it was an old roadside motel valuation from the assessor's office was $177,000. It's old. It's on a very old 50 by 140 lot. Again, very small real estate, uh, postage stamp size lots. So when you start adding parking to it, of course, it goes away instantly. But we had we had a really nice proposal come in. Now, in, instead of a uh, an old derelict roadside motel valued at about $177,000, we're going to get a $1.1 million brand new building in downtown. So we're we're pretty excited about it. And so one of our, the builder who's going to be doing this new project, he actually uh, aired a recent um, project of his on Discovery Channel. And anyway, he built some uh, home out of storage containers. Well, anyway, this is his commercial project now. So it's kind of fun. We're working with him on that. That's what this is all about though, right? It's about <clears throat> creating vitality and letting go of your hard and fast, gotta have a million parking spaces on a site when in fact, why not utilize your curbside? So there's that. There's another example of, again, back to the theme of breaking the rules on purpose. Um, <clears throat> again, not smooth sailing. Our planning commission was very worried about the impacts to neighborhoods because they're so close to our to our commercial uh, zones. And so we had to um, come up with some standards. For example, uh, you can't have more than... Um, 10 parking spaces off the boulevard or in the boulevard uh, in front of your, your site. So if you're lucky enough to have a pretty big site, we had to limit how much they could actually park in front of their property with angled or diagonal parking, just so it doesn't wind up being a, a sea of parking. So far, we, we haven't seen, um, the, the building is not under construction. It just, I think it just went through building permitting and code review. So again, it's experimental and we're always trying to experiment with something we're excited for this one. It's going to be a mixed-use office and vacation residential project. So we hope that it will, and it will in interest in, and get investment going. We actually had two or three others that are interested in doing something. So the first one, I think once it comes out of the ground, people will then say, oh, they did it that way? Okay, I get it. Yeah. With parking considered sacred <laughs> in some places, um, how did you convince leadership that this wouldn't cause a parking Carmageddon? We had a lot of changes. We we rolled out an option, uh, and then there, then then the planning commission said, "Well, yeah, how do we prevent the spillover of vehicles onto an adjacent property?" Um, and so from there, we had to say, "You're right. It's it's an issue. We have to address it." So what we did was we looked at it and we took the approach of, "Okay, let's say I have a lot." along a road frontage between two intersecting streets. Okay, that curb right now is public parking. Okay, so if it's parallel curbside parking for anybody today, why don't we go about the business of actually providing and identifying the credits to what properties along that one side would receive credit for parking? And it can be shared. So for example, if I have a redevelopment project and I need uh, 10 spaces, uh, I can park curbside uh, for the whole length of the street, as long as the 10 spacers are there. And so can my neighbor because they get to use it too. So we're, and they, but then they realize, well, there's double dipping. It's like, but, right, but that's the idea. 
you don't want to have to provide all of the peak parking all at the same time. The idea behind curbside parking is it allows people to come in, they'll say, okay, no parking there, I'm just going to whip around the corner. They, they can still do that. I think we had to remember, I'm sorry, we had to uh, remind the, the Planning Commission and the Council that, hey, look, this curbside parking is public parking right now. So we're not giving something to the developer or the property owner that they don't already have. It's a matter of let's keep an eye on how we're going to track a credit to those lands. And then if we find later on that we all we had uh, four redevelopment projects on that stretch and now we have parking all, the, all around the block, okay, now we go back and we fix it. We're still in kind of beta mode with this, to be honest. Um, but then the other part was, again, as the planning commission realized, there's going to be some lots that are have, have a lot of frontage. They wanted to control how much would be converted from grassy. See, we have a lot of 20 foot, 20, 30 foot wide boulevards. Yeah, from curb to property line, 20 feet, it could be parked in. And so when we said, let's keep that down to um, 10 is the maximum. So if you have 140 feet of frontage, that gives you an opportunity to park and add some trees and life will probably be pretty good. We think that that makes a lot of sense. And where there's no room to add that kind of parking, then they can go curbside because it's existing. It's it's no, it's no nothing new. We do have a, a little business that has always had sort of a lot of this curbside parking both sides of the street. And it does kind of trickle into the neighborhood, but it's it's it peaks. It's like, because it's a restaurant, it's real busy from about, you know, 7 a.m. till 10, and then there's a, a lull, and then it's lunch, and then they're closed for the because they're closed, they're very busy at night, but at any rate, so we're just, it, it, you have to talk it through, you have to remind, and I think a lot of it is, let's pull everybody back to what do we have right now, what is the status of this area today, because we're not creating anything different, we're just sort of giving it more of, we're, we're controlling it more. We're saying this this parking is credited to these these spaces because who else is gonna park there? None other than those businesses, right? And so to make sure that we didn't have a complete meltdown with uh, snow removal and, because of course, you know, in the wintertime snow. The one, the one use that had to have off-street dedicated parking was the residential hotel and anything that was would require an overnight stay. So when we did that, we were able to put in this particular site, they were able to get four, because they had two, was it two or three? I can't remember. I think it, I'm losing track now. At any rate, they had a requirement to park their um, guest units off, off the street. So that, and that worked out perfectly because now we have you know, it's snowing outside and it's midnight, uh, no cars are on the street because they're parked in their parking spaces. So we, we had to have that one concession. Otherwise, I don't think it ever would have made it past even our internal staff. <laughs> they would have said, no way, we're not gonna have full-time cars parked up and down the street. Um, another one we did, uh, another experiment was kind of a, kind of fell into it. It was an accident, actually. We had a, we had a miscommunication with a developer over how they were going to configure some parking along a commercial road. And I went out there one day and here they're pouring this massive concrete pad. And I came back to that, I was like, oh my goodness, they're gonna pour parking right off that. And it's just a small commercial cul-de-sac that serves 
kind of a new um, little mixed use village. And we were trying to figure out how, what are we gonna do with this? So that happened like week one. Week two, I happened to be um, in Boulder, Colorado visiting my family and we found a place where they were allowing reverse diagonal parking and we've been wanting to try this forever where you pull, you pull past the side and you back into it. So I called those guys and I said, let's make a deal. I'll let you keep your parking if you experiment with us and build it in the reverse diagonal design. And they're like, good, we're on board. So I managed to talk them into it and we've got our first ever diagonal parking um, reverse style in Spearfish. So that's another one. Uh, you know, when we were re redoing some of our major roads like Jackson Boulevard, they wanted to do it there. It's like, no, that's never going to fly. Um, but we, so we're trying to do things like that, that help give us a chance to try something. And this was on a dead end cul-de-sac. So pretty, pretty low risk if it didn't work. Uh, the, okay. So back to the inspiration was I saw an example of where it was working on a, on a major collector street in downtown Boulder on the campus of CU. So we're like, why? Because we, we have wanted to experiment with it. So there's always been that desire to try it. Uh, and again, it was a very low risk because it was at the end of a cul-de-sac. So, And people have gotten used to it. They know how to work it. Uh, we did learn a few things about how to design it that we would do differently. So the inspiration was we, we didn't, you know, the, the developers are planning on parking off of this local street that we were pretty sure we said no parking. But then we realized that we may have an opportunity to, to do something kind of creative, something that we wanted to experiment with here. If we just kind of, again, let go of your position. Don't be, don't hang on so tight to your position just because you don't want to look weak or whatever. We, we just, yeah, we did a little negotiating. We said, oh, okay, well, if it's going to be there, this is how we want it. So it was, it was just the ability to see how it works. And it does work really slick. You just, figure out the one you want, you pull past it, you back in, everybody's got a back in camera these days on their vehicles. So you can kind of see it. The only thing that we did uh, would do a little different was the, because on the other side of the reverse angle parking, there's cars that are, you know, parked traditionally with the front end. We need a, we need a wider piece of concrete separating those two right now. There's just a little curb and it's probably like this. It needs to be closer to about three or four feet. So, Again, lesson learned, so we'll fix it next time. Do we want to try it somewhere else? We, we would love to try it somewhere else. We would like to come up with a way that we can, again, be forward thinking. They wanted to try it on our, when we were upgrading our main uh, entrance into town, Jackson Boulevard. Uh, there was some suggestion from the design engineers to try a reverse diagonal parking. We just said, nope, we're, we can't do it because we've already got, we got a roundabout, so we got to contend with it. A roundabout. Our first ever roundabout is coming. So with these projects, it, it seems like you follow a, a very strong methodology of analyzing the problem, collecting real data, eliminating the, the fear and the, and the anecdotes, and then, you know, coming up with a, a, a correlated solution. So I think that with anything, a lot, a lot of planners, we jump into the solutions side of things before we really examine our baseline conditions. Here are the facts. Do you want it right? You can argue the facts if you want to, um, but it, when you don't have any data and you're just kind of operating off of a hunch, I think your credibility is really shot. 
Um, so that's where we try to come in knowing, you know, knowing ahead of time where we are in terms of just the raw statistics. We, we have some very scientific minds on our planning commission, so we've got to be very clear in how we deliver our methodology to them. And I, and I think it's a good process to go through. So we had our assistant city planner, Daniel, collected a tremendous amount of data from, he, he examined a lot of the commercial uses in this particular zoning district to try to figure out what exactly is their parking requirement. And we examined the high, the low, and in the middle, sort of the peak parking was 10 stalls. And so that, when we were able to say, hey, we checked out our actual usage and our actual land um, configurations and how properties are built. And this is what we've come up with. So that arriving at that 10, you know, as the maximum was not a number plucked from air, it was based and rooted on some actual examples. And I think that's all people are looking for is show me how this compares to my, to my existing conditions. And then I'll have to figure out now I know what I, what I can hang my hat on as an existing condition. And then we move forward from there. Instead of saying, oh, you know, it's, it's one per 200 this, one per 300 that. Um, and there's times that, frankly, our, our parking requirements are, are dead on. And then there's times that they're way off. Uh, you know, it depends upon, and it's really, it's so contextual. For example, go to, go to Safeway right now between now and about 6 o'clock, and you will say, that one per 300 for retail is magic. It works like a charm because there's no place to park. There's a few, <laughs> but I think our office may be a little bit high, especially when you have small, very small, low customer volume, the insurance agents, the, you know, one person practitioner medical offices. So that's where we have to look and, and really critically evaluate that. Um, so, yeah, we had to do a lot of scientific backgrounding before we could come up with that sweet spot of what felt right. We think once we get a few projects under our belt and we see what some of the problems may have been, yeah, we'll be, we'll be back in adjusting and fine-tuning it a little bit. Um, but that's the nature of the beast, right? You know, don't 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 be satisfied with just writing the code saying it's perfect. Don't change because <laughs> it it does. It always has to change. It has to grow and it has to reflect really what the community's desires. We may get this, we may do our first one in our council and our planning commission say, don't bring us another one of those ever again. We're going back to the old way. Okay, you know, we'll go back to the old way. But at least we tried. So it's hard though, because one of the challenges I think too is when you try to look for examples beyond your community, um, I won't say it's paranoia, but I will say there's a little bit of doubt. Well, okay. Well, that worked for them, but we're special and we're unique. We don't. <laughs> why would we? Why would we look at their their example because they're not us? Um, but I think it's just a Western thing. <laughs> but I think what is critical is a promise from the staff to say, "Hey, if this thing is broken, we're not afraid to come back and fix it. We're not afraid to say we we goofed. It 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 didn't work the way we wanted. We got to change things." And so. And we always, anything we do, we give that level of assurance to our decision makers to say, if you really don't like this, 
And if it does not meet your expectations, you have no pride of authorship, we are back and we're going to fix it. We'll make it right. So did you look to other communities as case studies when you were examining this problem? For the parking, the, the parking reduction project, we were. We were inspired, but of course, by big cities um, that don't, you know, they build skyscrapers, but they don't build one stall of parking. But then again, there's there's danger in doing that. Hey, if it works for downtown Denver, Minneapolis, or St. Louis, and they don't provide any parking, who are we to say it's not going to work? Good, they've shown that it works. I don't know. That's one of those things where you you can you can give her a try and see if they bite, and if they don't, then you have to come out a different way. But but we also we also do try to keep you know, good local examples. And so we did some research on that, on, on this parking incentive program, uh, look to see what Sioux Falls was doing, some other, you know, cities in our state. So we have both the scale of, you know, big urban metropolis down to small, medium-sized cities. So that helps. So you've changed your setback requirements. You've reduced your parking minimums. Your team's doing amazing things. Is there anything else that you're up to? Probably the next most, and it's in a very controversial project moving through the process right now is like every community, we are, we are really struggling with workforce housing. Um, and as, and let's define that a little bit, houses under 275,000, which is what the state of South Dakota classifies as workforce, affordable housing, right? But anyway, um, yeah. So about a this time last year, our city administrator uh, really wanted to see what kind of partnership could be made between the city and a builder if we front all the costs of the infrastructure, thus removing that cost out of the price of the lot. And then the developer in return promises to look to deliver houses. Um, there's three categories where we ended up with a contract with the developers. We're building the infrastructure for 150 homes. They will deliver uh, homes roughly proportioned. Um, i got to get this right here. So 40% of the homes will be priced at 175, 40% at 225, and then the remaining handful, the remaining 40, 40, 20% will be 275, nothing greater than 275. And, and so that's, that's kind of our next big move. We're working with tax increment financing to fund the streets, water, sewer, and we're going to build a sports complex at the same time. So we tied up the property. We're just right now looking at 50% design plans for the streets. Um, but the, again, the concern of the pushback was, of course, from the existing home building community, wanting to know why does the city want to get into the home building game and are you competing with our product and us. And the answer that we said was, well, show us where the homes priced in that range are, and we'll be happy to rethink our strategy. But of course there aren't any. So there's this concept of you're competing. Well, competition means that there's a, a similar product out there, which there obviously wasn't. So, and I'm not trying to sort of slam or be facetious, but it's about pointing out that it doesn't exist. If something's not existing, then there can't be a way that we're actually cutting you out of the out of, out of the, the picture. We enlisted the help of a local developer so we could understand, so that we can understand where he would be coming from. The day we had our selection meeting to figure out who our, develop, our partner was gonna be, 
he delivers this document and you can't see it, but what it says is how many homes were sold at 275 and below. And lo and behold on the MLS, the lowest uh, was 265 between one January of 19 and one January of 2020. And that was a brand new constructed home. That was the lowest one. And so we said, okay, we understand now, you know, or, or at least there was a, a recognition of the facts. But if, once again, data. And I I think as planners, yeah, we, we like to kind of feel our way through issues, but it, it's a hard strategy. You know, you have to really understand what is the background info. Anyway, it was an open process. Any home builder who, who wanted to partner with us could apply. Uh, it was a competitive process. We reviewed three development proposals from three different home builders, finally selected a group out of Rapid City who, this is kind of their niche. They do a lot of production home neighborhoods. And so uh, that that is our next kind of big thing that we're kind of innovating. It's not really, it kind of is breaking a mold. It's rather than wait for private industry to deliver something, let's incentivize private industry to deliver something. So was that land previously owned by the city or was it acquired as part of this process? We bought it uh, this spring from one of our local developers who was already involved in quite a bit of uh, residential development on the east end of town. 156 acres we purchased from him. And so, uh, but it's aggressive. There's an expectation there will be 150 new homes there within five years. For the city just getting involved, that's a pretty big development. It's real big, but we have, we just have, we believe, pent up demand. And after, you know, the coronavirus thing broke, we're like, well, it's now the good time. And then we said, you know, we need it now more than ever. I mean, as people are trying to get back on their feet and trying to recover from this. And so affordable housing will always be a need. So, and of course, every community is now recognizing that your, your housing inventory and the cost thereof are huge deterrents to economic development sometimes, you know, so we have to to figure that out and we're going to give it a try. So you're really incentivizing workforce housing and helping this development to pencil out with those more affordable units included. When you can remove, uh, you know, $40,000 of infrastructure costs from the land purchase per lot, that's saying something. A lot that would ordinarily cost 60 to 70 in, in real world is only going to cost, I think we'll, we agreed to sell them to the developer for 20000 apiece. So we're going to make our money back from the tax increment district to pay for the infrastructure. And then they'll be able to pass those savings on by building. They, they're not going to have to build a or pay for a $60,000 lot, which is then reducing the price of their home building costs. And like I said, they're a production builder. So that's our new that's our new thing where we're kind of breaking breaking and plowing some new fields. It's been it's not been easy, but it's it'll be worth it. Um, and I think these like the, the old saying goes, if it were easy, everybody'd be doing it. Yeah, it's so true. Do you have any other projects that you've been up to? Well, here's another one. We just a couple of years ago did our first ever mobile food vending um, licensing scheme and what has been so interesting with that for years there was just this thought that city property shouldn't be used by business we shouldn't we shouldn't allow 
people to make money off city property. And so the question is, well, why not? Um, don't you want a successful and vibrant city? If that means uh, you can get a guy on a hot dog stand or an ice cream uh, cart running through the park selling ice cream, wouldn't that just be the funnest thing? Well, again, we had to work with the restaurant owners to let them know that mobile, mobile food is not going to kill your restaurant because the people who want to go sit down in air conditioning or in heat on a hot day or a warm day or cold day, they're coming to your bricks and sticks. They're not going to, they're not, they don't want to go order a corn dog out of a window. Um, so we had to work on that quite a bit. And a lot of it was talking rationally and, and trying to help them logic it out. But just today I was on my bike for my lunchtime ride and um, drove by the park and here we have a brick oven pizza mobile food vendor set up. And I just think that's, that's great. I mean, people from, coming from the park, they're going down there, they're visiting our parks, they're giving this guy a little bit of business and sort of mobile food vending permission. It was only related to ice cream trucks and you had to go to the council and get a contract to run an ice cream truck in town. Kind of like, what is this, a cable franchise or something? Um, so we we sort of said, okay, let's let's get rid of this idea that it's a limited commodity just for the ice cream trucks. Why can't it be a burrito or a taco wagon? Or we have a we have one that comes to town. Everybody loves. It's like a, a fish and chips place. Super good. Um, so again, that's what makes your city fun and enjoyable. But for that one, we just sort of had to throw out the option to say, you you can hang on to the idea that nobody gets to make money off city property. You can you can keep that. But we have to remember, we we have a massive art festival in our park every summer where we invite people who don't even live here to come and make lots of money out of our park. How is it, how is it different than if we allowed a mobile food vendor to come in and do something enjoyable? One by one, we're just trying to, we're, we're trying to reset the standards for creativity in the city. Um, it's been hard because there's a lot of, there's a lot of old values that are held like such as nobody should make money off of city property. I don't know. Why not? Tell me why not. Jaina, this has been so great. Do you have any advice for other Western planners, especially those that are starting out? Just do good work. I mean, be, be humble. Don't, don't think you know everything, you know, ask for help, ask for better ideas than your own. I mean, I think planners can get pretty arrogant thinking we got all the answers and we just, work away and whatever, but, um, and just respect that everybody's coming from a position. You just have to understand how, how they, how they want to work it and work with people. If you're out of your league, don't just, you know, brute force through it. You know, something bad's going to happen. And I guess my, that one of my moments was when I came to this position, I knew nothing about tax increment financing. Um, and I really had to depend upon and rely on, a lot of other professionals that had been there and um, you know and just because they're doing it a certain way doesn't mean necessarily it's the right way you have to do your own research and don't let just because someone told you that's what statute says don't trust them go look it up for yourself make sure you know that your foundation is solid because one day it could be you on the line and somebody says that's not what that says and here you you've been sort of playing the game of telephone by just relaying the message on over the years and that actually happened to me today. 
that I learned something <laughs> that I, I, I thought was right. And indeed, it's not right. So it's okay. You know, always, always be willing to, you know, get your own data. Um, look, read it for yourself. So get, look for help for others. And just don't be, a, don't be, and also don't be afraid to make, you know, admit that something has gone wrong. Um, and because again, something bad's going to happen if you just keep barreling through, like nothing's ever going to change. Thank you. So last question, how has the Western Planner been helpful to you in your career? A Western Planner, I think is so important only because it is, it really is, first of all, I like it because it's written by planners, especially for the articles and the, and, and the topical information. It's not some editorial board that has zero idea of, of how they're, you know, where they're coming from. So I think it's the fact that it is uh, for planners and written by planners, all of the articles. Um, Western Planner has been instrumental, I think, in my professional development that way, um, just because I come to rely on speaking of, you know, getting ideas from others. There's there's not, no topic that has not been covered in, in an article. Plus, I just think the camaraderie is great. I mean, that planners from 13 different states can get together. And unfortunately, you know, this summer is just not going to happen. But but you, you get to know so many people and your network just expands. And then like the, the day Jim Strozier never emails me, it's like, got an email from you. Was that a hack? And they're like, yes. I think that that's more what I like. And when we hosted... So, yeah, because we hosted here in Spearfish in 2017. My God, time is flying. And it just seemed like, you know, everybody was just in step with each other from the last time. So I really appreciate the support of other members and ideas that they can provide for each other. And for me, it's been a great, it's been a great relationship. Thanks so much, Jaina. We are also super fortunate to have you on the editorial board. And thanks, everyone. That was Jana Watson, the city planner for Spearfish, South Dakota. And that wraps up our episode of Western Planner Radio. Check out our website where you can get more great planning content at westernplanner.org. You can also sign up for our free e-journal, which is written by planners for planners. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. And join us again next month. And in the meanwhile, let's keep building up the West together. Thanks. Thanks.